Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing? I'm great, Chris. We got a, I think, an important, interesting, and exciting panel today. We do. And this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my co-host and cohort, especially Richard Gottlieb. And we are really excited to welcome to the show today, John Tong, who is Managing Director of King Bee Toys, and he is on the current Hong Kong Trade Development Commission Toys Advisory Council. And Jacqueline Vong, who is president and co-founder of Playology International. And we're going to talk about the evolution and the power of the Chinese retail market today. And we're really excited to talk about this. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Richard. Get us started. I was really struck by the fact that the e-commerce in China this year accounted for 52% of all retail sales. Now, that's the first country in the world ever to exceed 50%. And to give that some proportion, the digital sales in the U.S. last year were 15%, 1.5. So that's about three and a half times more than the U.S. The number two country was South Korea, right around 29%, followed by the U.K. at around 28 And as I read this, uh, several things went through my mind. I thought about uh, the fact that the Chinese retail market was growing so rapidly uh, and that it was an extraordinary to me that they are so far ahead in terms of digital commerce. And then finally, what hit me the hardest was what would happen to the U.S. bricks and mortar market if we were over 50 percent? So my mind immediately went to John Tong and Jacqueline Vong. And I called you, Chris, and we set this up. <laughs> and so so they're going to solve the problem for us in the next half hour. And no, seriously, Jacqueline and John, welcome. Jacqueline, if you'd start by telling us a little bit about Playology and what you're doing now and a little bit about how you got to uh, where you are. Playology International is a licensing and content development um consultancy. We do a lot of licensing, uh, character licensing, as well as uh, work with companies and creators into creating amazing content because content is king right now. And we sell it globally around the world. Formerly, I was working for John in mainland China as the vice president of marketing and licensing. We were on a mission to bring international renowned brands into mainland China, which was a very tough feet because there was a lot of difficulties about, you know, even the culture of what we believe in the West as everyday items into the East. There was pricing, there was counterfeit enforcement. There was also a lot of retail development and sophistication of what the consumers were buying back in the day. So it was an amazing opportunity and a big role. So thank you, John, for that great opportunity. I'm back in Canada now, uh, working on my own and hustling, but it's been such a eye-opening experience and I bring that adventure into everything that I do now. John, tell us a little bit about you. I've known you and been and admired you for, for many years. Tell us a little bit about your history and King Bee Toys. And also uh, your company, Wang Hao. Say hello from Sh- uh, Shanghai. And uh, I just get out of quarantine 14 days uh, in a confinement. But uh, I'm just ex- ex- uh, excited that I get my freedom back. So I'm ha- happy to see you guys. 
Uh, I started Cave Me Toys in you know, 2013 uh, with the idea of bringing in uh, overseas brands to the Chinese market. And my background is uh, I'm a third generation toy owner. So we own toy factory. We are in the trading business and uh, our family business, Wong Hao, has been in uh, the uh, toy business for over 65 years. So what we did at King B Toys is uh, we have opportunity to uh, bring in the well-known brands uh, such as from uh, we started at Fisher Price and then uh, Barbie, and then uh, 2015 we have opportunity at uh, to bring in the uh, Minions uh, movie toys, and then uh, 2016 we have the Master Toys uh, license to bring in the Peppa Pig line <laughs> into China. So, and over the last few years, Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig has been uh, one of the top baby licenses uh, in China. So we have the opportunity to really work and uh, build the toy lines uh, from uh, from the grounds up. And uh, China is a big market, but it's a big market, also big challenges from uh, counterfeit enforcement, uh, trademark, and a lot of different things. But it is really fast going, so we are learning a lot. And e-commerce has seen that it has really grown for, for the last 10 years. I guess a, what would be really helpful for starters is, could you tell folks, and Jacqueline, you can chime in on this too, uh, who are the major bricks and mortar and digital commerce players in China? Some of the digital key players in China are players that you may or may not have heard of in the Western world. Alibaba, which controls over 50% of China's e-commerce market. They own websites like, you may have heard, Tobo and Tmall. Tobo is where people in China usually go for little trinkets up to expensive items, whereas Tmall.com, you go and you find your brand name. So Nike flagship store, Barbie flagship store, you you find that the more sophisticated brands really invest in brand pages in Tmall versus Tobo, which is selling little trinkets. One of the main reasons that they're so big in the marketplace is because they own a digital payment service called Alipay. So that's a really important point. The next competitor out there is JD or Jingdong.com. It holds about 17 to 20% of the market and it is growing. It is invested in automated and drone services, especially throughout the pandemic. It was fascinating how they had created these contactless portals that they could they could deliver anything to you, such as baby formula to diapers. So very, very sophisticated. And then a new one, which is fascinating because I left Hong Kong and China in 2016 and a new e-player cropped up called Ping Dudu. Ping Dudu really started up in 2015, and it has grown to be the top in the top three, owning about almost just under 10% of the market share in China, which is fascinating because it's only been five years. It takes people forever to own that. So what's really interesting is with Ping Dudu is There are consumers that buy, but they kind of share that platform and they create a group buying scenario where people who want to buy the same thing create more volume and therefore they help decrease the prices. So they've been really um, helping local agriculture and farmers out there to do perishable goods deliveries in um, big bulks smaller prices, and fast delivery. It's fascinating how fast this, this player has grown. 
Jacqueline was great on saying Alibaba Group, uh, JD.com and Pingdudu. And there is also a, a women-focused platform uh, called VIP.com, which is also listed uh, in uh, New York Stock Exchange. The other is uh, Xiaohongshu. And uh, also I see an up-and-coming online platform, which is uh, Douyin uh, TikTok, which is the owner of TikTok. And uh, as you know, uh, the power of TikTok and Douyin is uh, humongous. John, could you tell us, in your opinion, why uh, e-commerce is such a big factor in China? First of all, in China, we have over 989 million internet online users. It's almost 1 billion online users. Uh, about 70% of our population, we really have a high percentage of uh, online users. And uh, secondly, the online platform, the majority of the online purchase actually go uh, through the uh, mobile platform. That's been from your smartphone, smart device. Uh, so people, they are buying things when they are uh, going to work or, or they are waiting for the children uh, from school. The way that the, the online sales platform is really convenient for the user. And then third, why people buy online instead of uh, from offline? I think the main reason is for pricing because they are getting deals. The Chinese online business, they have not only just November 11, they basically have promotion every month. The last couple of days, uh, two days ago, it was the March 8th uh, Women's Day, the National Women's Day, and uh, they, have, they just have an, another promotion. So those with uh, getting the deals and through group buys and uh, through the monthly promotion, and that's also a major promotion. And last, the group buys, and just from uh, Pingdodo, and uh, also uh, from uh, internet uh, chat group, and also through KOLs. So those uh, also create a lot of sales. Just to add to John, one of the major advantages China has online over everybody in the world is everything seems to be manufactured in China. <laughs> Every true. 85% of the toys are manufactured in China for the um, for the export market. So you can tell that price is a huge factor and delivery costs is almost negligible because first of all, it's manufactured there. So the logistics and how sophisticated those uh, logistics systems are already um, in place that um, we don't have to worry about that. Not only that, the convenience of online, you can literally order a trinket or milk and get it within hours for delivery. And so it is just fascinating how fast it's grown and how convenient the pricing, the logistics. And I have to mention one other thing, John. I think many Chinese consumers only began having disposable income after the widespread use of having the internet. And so everybody has grown into the internet and consumerism when they were able to afford to buy. So that's a really important point because we didn't they didn't grow up going into brick and mortar stores and buying. Can you tell us who the major bricks and mortar players are in China? Uh, the major brick and uh, mortars are in terms of toys. I would say that... Uh, uh, some familiar names that uh, you, that you know, uh, which is uh, Toys R Us or Hamleys, Mother's Cares. But there is also a lot of local players and uh, like uh, Sunning and Kidsland. So there are a number of uh, Walmart and uh, Sam's Club 
those are some of the majors or toy retailers in China. Yeah, and, and I recall that when Costco opened its first store, they had to like almost close down the city. It was <laughs> there was so much traffic to the store. So it seems at the same time that e-commerce is growing, it sounds like bricks and mortar is growing. So if if the market was up fifty two percent for e-commerce sales, did that have a negative impact on bricks and mortar sales in China? I look at the last year figures. Uh, actually, the traditional offline ch- channels it was off a little bit uh, from last year. Uh, it was primarily because uh, the uh, the Chinese retail market was shut down by in January and February for about three to four months uh, due to COVID nineteen. But uh, the China recovered quickly, but it didn't recover uh, soon enough. Soon enough. So the traditional uh, retail market. It's still important for promotion, but uh, but for the convenience of uh, e-commerce, I mean, as as you see, it's, it's uh, about over fifty percent now, and uh, and I think that uh, both uh, online and offline they could co- coexist, but we just have to reposition uh, the uh, offline channels to have more promotion, um, to have uh, to be more experienced uh, uh, store, and uh, and also create more deals to the consumers to drive up the traffic. We've been talking about what's working over there. And Jacqueline, you've said that Amazon, eBay, and Google have failed in China. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Amazon just recently, I I don't think so recently, but in 2019 folded its business structure in uh, China. And I think that that says a lot because Amazon put a lot of effort into it. And so did Google. So Google folded earlier and so did eBay. Um, these are international players that have built strategies into China from having a successful business outside of China. One thing that I would always say is you cannot lift and land a strategy from the West into the East. That is impossible. There's cultural shifts. Repeat that again. It's a great quote. You cannot lift and land a strategy from the West into the East because there are different tastes and preferences, cultural sensitivities, pricing. There's a different way to do almost everything inside China than it is outside. And so one of the reasons I believe Amazon failed is because, first of all, the local players like JD.com and Alibaba were so strong. And when Amazon was setting up its infrastructure and logistics, Alibaba and the other players were looking at pricing. When Amazon was focused on pricing. Alibaba was focused on taking down trademark infringements and copycats. So they were always one step ahead and they were growing and gaining in such momentum. Also, I think Amazon's page, and I'm I'm looking at Amazon specifically, in China, it looked exactly like it would in the US. Very clean shopping experience, clickable. Whereas if you go to China, what we're very used to, the Chinese, is a lot of noise, a lot of color, a lot of everything popping up at you. It's very busy. And I think it wasn't as localized as it needed to be. So those are some things that I, in my own opinion, Jacqueline Vong's opinion, have isolated as potential reasons why Amazon failed. I have a few points to add. And I agree with Jacqueline that there are challenges for overseas business coming to China. And uh, localization is really one of the main points. But uh, the selection of merchandise 
is even more important uh, as as a uh, overseas company. Amazon and eBay just doesn't have as many selection and uh, as many deal as uh, Taobao and uh, JD.com uh, that offer. So, so I, I think the main one of the main reason is really getting the uh, the right product mix. And then secondly, in China, we have uh, WeChat and a lot of different social groups, but that only works within China. And uh, when an overseas platform uh, comes into China, uh, you cannot uh, go with Facebook or you cannot go go with uh, Google's and uh, those overseas social platforms because it doesn't have any power in China. So that is uh, also make it uh, difficult to get to the Chinese market. And then third, Alibaba, uh, Taobao, and uh, uh, JD, they also offer overseas buy. So what Amazon can offer from an overseas seller, Alibaba and uh, JD, they can offer at the same or better price quickly and in Chinese. So it, it really comes down to really the, the product mix and the merchandising and uh, the local company really have an edge over overseas, overseas player. If I can just add to this, I think it's really interesting to look globally at the macro picture of the biggest digital commerce companies and the percentage of global e-commerce market they own globally. And you will see that four out of the six global players are Chinese players. So Taobao, Tmall, JD, and Pingdudu are in the top six. And then we have Amazon and eBay. So that's really, really interesting via most revenue recognized via marketplace sales. John, you, of course, uh, live in Hong Kong. You're, you work in China. Uh, you know the Chinese market inside out. But you do come visit us here in the United States quite a bit. And Jacqueline, uh, you have lived in both worlds. So I, I guess my question would be, what are the similarities in the differences between the Chinese and U.S. retail markets. Now, I know you you said, you said talked about some of them, both of you have. But, for instance, when you walk into a U.S. mass merchandiser, let's say Walmart, and you work, walk into a very large mass merchandiser, and you'd have to supply me the name in China, what, what, how might the experiences be similar and how might they be different? Well, the similarities are that there's a Walmart in China, Walmart in U.S. Is there a greeter? Is there a greeter? There are greeters. There's (laughs) similar branding. But when you go into, let's say, a Walmart in China, it's a lot of localized merchandise, including live um, uh, seafood and live merchandise, the smells of the marketplace you would see items that are not similar, that are very localized, you know, dry jellyfish, whatnot. Um, you also would see, but in, in similarities, you would see major toy brands, Hasbro, Mattel, Lego, they're there. But what's interesting is that they also have Chinese localized brands that are lookalikes. So, the Chinese Bambao would be there, which is the Chinese Lego. There would be a Wawa, which is a, a doll line that would be very pink and similar to Barbie. There would be definitely something that looks like a robot, that looks like a transformer. And possibly these localized brands are a little less expensive because there is a higher perceived value for these 
foreign brands, but to a consumer, sometimes cost and price are everything. So there is a bit of a price discrepancy um, there. One major difference in US, um, Western world versus um, China world is decentralized buying. Everything in the Western world, there is a buying office that you can go present your items to, your line to, and they will um, work on the logistics to get it out to their many stores. Whereas in China, it's really, really hard to come by where there's one home office that you present your item to and it will just dole out um, all your items into the stores. I think there's a Walmart, a Toys R Us, a Carrefour. Is Carrefour still there? I'm not sure. Um, and a couple of others. Let's do there. You really have to work with your localized distributors within China for the different regional plays because it's not all set up. And so while there's 800 million households and 400 million kids in China, you still can't get to them via one buying office. It was the hardest role I've ever had to do because I was on the road possibly every week into a different region and presenting an item that would either uh, fit or not fit. And we'd have to make it work within the local state lines. John, you brought Peppa Pig to China. Could you talk a little bit about what was involved in bringing Peppa to China? When we bring in an uh, overseas brand, uh, China China is a big market, so we use uh, some uh, benchmark retailers, and uh, we are both online and offline. So uh, the benchmark uh, online retailer is uh, Timor, and uh, and there is a uh, the benchmark the highest level of benchmarks or store is the, called the Timor Flagship Store, and uh, that they will only allow one brand per store. We were able to do that, and it has to be a very renowned uh, international brand. So we were able to help Pepper to get the Timor Fashion Store. And then secondly, uh, we have a launch partners, and our Toys R Us has about 200 stores in China. And, uh, and we started launching the, the, the program uh, with a Toys R Us exclusive uh, for six months. And uh, over the six months, uh, we have different promotional uh, period uh, from, from mascot and uh, some store promotions and uh, some uh, TV different uh, ads. And then really get us uh, six months to get the retailers and, uh, and also the consumers. Uh, and then once the animation also start becoming popular, so we were able to uh, benefit from our popularity of the brand. For U.S. toy companies who want to break into China, we have talked to a lot of them, and there are some very smart people, and they understand the localization of it. But for tips for launching a brand in China. I often tell people when they want to launch in China, first of all, you can throw a lot of money at it, and it evaporate in a China second. And that's faster <laughs> than a real second. Because if you don't do it properly, you can spend a lot of money trying to enter the marketplace. You know, and it looks all good on paper, but really it, it would be a wasted effort and a waste of resources. So some of the tips, and these are just tips that I tell everybody, protect yourself. That's one of the biggest things. Make sure you have your trademarks, your um, patents buttoned up. The second thing is make sure your factory does too. There's a lot of different safety testing and certificates that you need to get to localize your products versus export your products. And you'd be surprised. It's, you know, something called a China CCC, which is a China certification and the tax structure. You've got to make sure you have partners like John Tong. He's one of the best in the business um, and he knows what he's talking about. He also 
puts a lot of effort into counterfeit enforcement, which, you know, if you have one ounce of success in the US, there are people in China just watching that and making sure that they either repurpose your trademark that you haven't captured in China to use in China and or copycat your product. So it's very important that you have a great partner that has a trademark infringement area and is willing to go after those factories, shut those down, shut down those um, online stores, those brick and mortar stores that are selling all those copycats that could really eat into your profit. It's interesting because back in the, in the uh, I guess the 90s, when I was first going to Hong Kong, you would walk the Hong Kong show and you'd see a lot of stuff that was inspired by established brands. Let's just let's just put it that way. But in the past several years, because the Trade Development Council and people like John have been really aggressive at that, you see a lot less of that. It's really been it's really been an effective effort. At the uh, Hong Kong Toy Show, uh, since that I'm the chairman of the Hong Kong TDC Toy Advisory uh, Panel, we have a uh, counterfeit enforcement. Uh, we work with a lawyer. We work with uh, the, uh, the the trademark attorney, and uh, and we actually did a walkthrough uh, before every uh, Hong Kong toy show, and uh, and then make sure that the counterfeit company uh, cannot exhibit there. But uh, and then uh, if there is uh, some complaint, and uh, Hong Kong TCC will react uh, quickly under the uh, also work with other Hong Kong custom and agent. One of my other observations in all the years of going to Hong Kong and into China has been a growing sophistication of companies there and that there seems to be a greater understanding that taking a legitimate license and developing that with the IP owner is a really powerful business strategy and allows for actually greater profitability and greater volume than perhaps uh, being inspired by something else. How, how do you feel about that and, and the growth of licensing in China? I think that's a great question, Chris. Um, the sophistication, you're right, has grown as we have evolved inside China and the business of domestic toy brands have grown. So I think in the past, and the past, the recent past, as recent as maybe 2014, I think a lot of toy companies were looking at a way to expand into the market with a different conversation piece, which is a license. And whether it's an inspired by license, because there wasn't really the offering of a legitimate license into China. I think when the bigger licensors have started to come into China in 2012 into now, I think one of the key challenges are, and I'll use an example, Universal came in after three movies of the Minions. The movies were very successful globally ex-China because they were not in China originally um, for the Minions. When they decided to come into China around 2014 to 2015, it was a third iteration. They did not think to um, trademark or protect the name Minions before they came into China. And this is a real story because John and I lived through this and we were one of the key licensing partners in toy for this brand. We were in Beijing 
Uh, we had signed the license. We were very excited because we have seen the success globally of this franchise. It was huge. And we have seen that people like the Minions. I mean, they were in the marketplace, but I didn't realize that they were all counterfeits um, into the marketplace. So when we were at Universal's headquarters in Beijing and they were telling us, greetings, licensees, you are, thank you so much for investing in our brand. By the way, we don't have the China trademark of them. <laughs> so we are going to officially change the Chinese name of this brand. And you, you may appreciate this coming from the West to little yellow people. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Oh, wow. Story. I've been sitting here living with this story forever because it's an amazing story <laughs> to tell to the West. But here's the thing. When I originally heard it, no one else, including John, understood. Maybe he did, but he didn't laugh like I did. I laughed. <laughs> he laughed himself. I was like, the implications of this are there are millions of minions, millions of Chinese people. The minions work on an assembly line. <laughs> World's factory. There are so many other comparisons, which I'm not going to draw because it would be inappropriate, but I was very upset because I thought, oh my goodness, super racist. <laughs> Called up Universal US in California, stayed up very late one night, did that. They, they said, you know, China needed to go rogue. They needed to rebrand and no one outside of China would really um, understand that. And it's true. When I took it back to King B and our localized team, I said, guys, do you have a problem with this? And they're like, no, we think it's great. They're little and they're yellow. So that <laughs> makes complete sense. Now, the drawback of that is when we actually manufacture the product under little yellow people instead of the minions, we ended up not doing as well with our licensing program versus the people on the street that were using the unofficial name in China, Minions. They were making way more money, not paying licensing royalties, and also benefiting from the trickle effect internationally. <laughs> I think it's a fabulous story, especially considering what we've just gone through here in the U.S. with Dr. Seuss. And the, the choice <laughs> to to pull back six books of the huge canon because of sensitivities. And I think you point up something that is really, really critical, which is international sensitivities are different. and Or non-existent. Or non-existent. Literally, literally the, the, if I could continue my story, my, my people totally didn't get it. And so I was sitting in this world where I was localizing little yellow people. And I was totally against it. Like I would go into Toys R Us and be like, Hey, buy my little yellow person line. And I'd be like dying inside a little bit because I am Asian yellow, like, you know, yellow skinned and I'm a littler person. So I just found it really, truly such a, um, you know, two different sides of me. We live in a global community now, and trends cross-pollinate between countries fairly easily in, in a heartbeat, really. Uh, Jacqueline, what are some of the Chinese trends that we're starting to see show up in the U.S.? 
I'm glad you asked me about trends. I think there's a really interesting trend right now in China that we should be really paying attention to, especially um, that it was featured during their national Chinese New Year broadcast on CCTV, which is the national broadcast. They had invited a celebrity guest, as they do every year, and it's a coveted spot because everybody watches it nationally. And this year it was... Uh, her name is Vaya, the queen of live stream. So live streaming e-commerce is huge in China. So she was invited to be on this national broadcast where over 20 million people just watched on the online platform Tobo and over 1 billion people watched it nationally on um, Chinese CCTV. And she basically live streamed things to buy. And it's kind of like QVC on the internet. So QVC meets TikTok. And so this has become a huge trend. There's an app called Kaoshua, and it has become a, a huge industry. I think they went for a Hong Kong IPO, and they went for $160 billion in its first day. So China was eager to show during Chinese New Year its leadership in this live streaming platform where it has become the competitor to Douyi, which is Chinese's TikTok. And so that's something that we're seeing. And you know what? We are paying attention in the West. We've seen this because Amazon Live is starting up. And it's basically something very similar as well as we've seen Walmart bring in TikTok and some kind of live shopping event where, you know, you can follow kids or whatnot through the malls and see what they gravitate towards. And you can see people actually doing a live stream there. So we are seeing this trend in the U.S. trickle through. And another trend that I, I see in China is um, the large, uh, like uh, Timor or uh, JD.com or the VIP.com, all the large online platform, they are having many of their own retail store in many uh, districts. And, uh, and not only that, they serve that as a delivery uh, uh, center and uh, of their merchandise. They also uh, serve as uh, some launching exciting uh, brand new merchandise, also as a part of as a convenience store. The store area is not very big. It's just like a 7-Eleven store. But I'm seeing that, uh, yeah, the, both online platform that they are really getting into the uh, brick and mortars uh, uh, business uh, in, in the in the last few years. Just to close out our show today, um, I would like to ask you, what do you predict is the future of retail in China, and what can we in the United States learn about our future? In China, what we are seeing is uh, the more and more use of uh, digital payment. And I think that's also a, uh, the Chinese government also a push of the digital currency so that the uh, uh, online platform and uh, digital currency and digital payment will, will continue to grow in China. Uh, you're going to see a lot of group buys and you're going to see uh, more and more KOLs type of promotional business. And that may be the new norms of uh, the retail. I think a lot of commerce will be done app-based on your phone conveniently. I think we will see a lot of technology roll out because of the 5G network and the possibilities with 5G. I think we'll see a lot more technology with AR and VR and how that impacts your shopping experience virtually and online. As I was saying, live streaming e-commerce will be huge. I also think 
more brick and mortar stores will be used more as pop-up events and experiences like showrooming and really just showcasing the the brand's appeal and really um, having the market understand the ethos of the brand versus actual transactional sales every day. What can we in the United States learn from what's happening in China? In China, they use a lot of big data, small data. And uh, so, so uh, looking at the consumers or shopping habits. And, uh, and then they're also using those data with different groups. That's something. And also electronic payments. And if we, we make it uh, more convenient. And uh, one thing that I see that uh, people using the uh, Alipay and also the WeChat Pay. So the security is important. And China is as the leading technology on uh, facial recognition and also uh, some secure payment system. So, uh, so, so when there, there's a large transaction, they will also use facial recognition and also check your ID. So, so those are the uh, some of the things that help to prevent the fraud. Jacqueline Vong, President, Co-Founder, Playology International. John Tong, Managing Director, King Bee Toys. This has been such an incredible conversation. So great to connect with you, even on the other side of the world, John. And thank you so much for joining us. And you got to come back because we have so much more to talk about. Thank you. you. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind for the toy industry right now and probably Nothing more top of mind, Richard, right now than the fact that we've been doing this for a year. It's just over a year since the initial COVID lockdowns happened. What a year for the toy industry. And there's been some highlights and some lowlights. And I thought we'd talk about a few of those. So uh, why don't you go first? Chris, I think that, first of all, it's been a good year overall for the toy industry. We've had double-digit increases. And I think as far as the supply side, toy companies, I, I think most companies came out pretty well this year. I think who struggled were uh, smaller retail stores, department stores, some of the high-end folks. I think they struggled. So it was tough for them. Uh, but overall, in virtually every category, uh, it, it looked like uh, business was up. I tell you, Chris, what I think about the year and, and the piece that's missing is uh, the shows. Oh, and, yeah. oh, yeah. And I want to talk about that with you from both a collegiality standpoint and also from a, a revenue standpoint. There are people that I only see, and there's a lot of them, that I only see when I go to a show. Right, right. Only see and, and we are a migratory industry. <laughs> we, we tend to travel from show to show. And and it's nice. It's nice to see these people. Some of them I, I know well. Some of them I, I don't. But we, we stop. We, we smile. We have a moment. I think I've really missed that this year. Oh, me too. I wonder how many business opportunities were missed. One of the charms of a trade show is that serendipity moment where you run into somebody and a little connection goes off in your head. And a conversation takes place and a deal is done or the beginning of a thread that will lead to a deal that would not have happened if you had never run into that person. And then the term of being at a toy show and walking the aisles and seeing that product you never would have seen if you were not at that show. 
Uh, and so I wonder how much business was was lost, and how many smaller, particular smaller companies who didn't have the advantage of a flow of traffic past their booth suffered this year. It's very likely that people did suffer, and I think that. On the positive side, though, I think that the industry has been just brilliant at adapting to new technology, to pivoting, to trying to recreate a lot of that connectivity through online. Of course, they're never going to get it completely right. But when I look at what people were doing a year ago in terms of talking about product and people in their kitchen holding things up to computer cameras to now very sophisticated (laughs) showroom experiences or people in showrooms and really trying to replicate that experience. I think it's been amazing. And I do think that there is going to be a kind of hybridization of this type of presentation. People still want to be in front of other people, but I think that using this technology and money that would have gone into trade shows going into technology is really going to be leveraged in ways that can be far more productive for communications and the selling process as we move forward. Once you've invested in building a studio in your company's offices, and, and people did that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, they, they're invested <laughs> financially and, and kind of emotionally do if you and and so I do think that we're going to see some kind of hybridization uh, take place. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in October with the Dallas Toy Show. By that time, uh, it looks like, based on what the president said the other night, that uh, we should probably be pretty much vaccinated up by that time. I think it's a pretty good chance that show will will happen. I do, too. And I think people are eager for it. The other thing we keep hearing is that the next time the industry will gather en masse is probably Hong Kong in 2022. I do think that October is looking good and people will be so eager to be back together again. One of the other things that I think has been a challenge that people have had to meet is, according to a lot of the toy companies I've talked to, It's really easy to get repeat orders for things that have already got some marketplace traction when you show them on a screen or you show them in a virtual environment. It's much harder to launch new innovation, and it's much harder to get buy-in from retailers on new innovation. I've also heard that retailers are delaying orders, primarily because they don't know what's coming down the pike. So... There's a little bit of hesitancy. So that's probably going to work itself out, though, in the next few months, as you say, as we get more vaccinations. But that's going to create another logjam, potentially, in the supply chain. If if people wait a long time, then you're going to have people trying to generate, factories trying to generate orders out of the factory and get them on ships at the same time. And which could be a continuation of what we've seen with the logistic challenges. And I do want to talk about that for a minute. That's been a real kind of surprise this year is that, and, and, and we didn't see this coming. At least I didn't, that people, when they didn't spend on entertainment and travel, would switch that money to consumer products. As a result, sales of, of toys and other hard goods have gone through the roof. And as a result of that, the supply chain could not accommodate all that flow of goods. And I don't think that's going to be permanent. I think the bottleneck will ultimately work itself out. I do think that the publicly traded toy companies have some pretty hard comps to meet this year. 
because the people who bought a Barbie dream house last year in July probably aren't buying another one this year. Same thing with swing sets and bicycles and trampolines. But I think that this year is ultimately going to be looked at as an anomaly with some good and some bad. And it will probably be by about this time next year, assuming all goes well, that things have started to smooth out in the, in the process, both in terms of selling and design and production and logistics. It's been a year uh, like no other, unless you were around in 1918 for the flu epidemic. People, tell, <laughs> people think I was, but I really wasn't. <laughs> I remember you. Um, so anyway, uh, it's been a year. Most of us are still here. Thank God. All right. And, and I think the one thing I, I want to leave this with is I have been so impressed by the spirit with which people have embraced this. And it's not, of course, it's been out of necessity to try and keep businesses rolling, but there's been so much creativity and so much good spirit and goodwill and humor about all of this, even when it seemed dire, that it really speaks to the nature of the toy industry and the people who are attracted to it. Well said. This is an optimistic industry. And perhaps because the life cycle of our products are so short, you have to be optimistic that you're going to come up with yet another great product next year and another great product. And you're going to figure out a way to succeed and, and to go on. And we're optimistic that we're going to be here. So if you are enjoying the Playground podcast, we hope you'll share it with your friends and colleagues and Come back and see us often. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And this is the Playground Podcast. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. We'll see you next time.